Chapter 7, Part 4 of The Life of David Brainerd by John Stiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Part 4. 28th. I concluded the solemnity with a discourse upon John, chapter 14, verse 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments, at which time there appeared great tenderness in the audience in general, but especially in the communicants. Oh, how free! How engaged and affectionate did these appear in the service of God! They seemed willing to have their ears bored to the doorposts of God's house, and to be his servants forever. Observing numbers in this excellent frame, I thought it proper to improve this advantageous season, as Hezekiah did his great Passover, Second Chronicles chapter 31, in order to promote the blessed reformation begun among them, and accordingly proposed to them that they should renewedly enter into covenant before God, that they would watch over themselves and one another, and especially that they would watch against the sin of drunkenness, the sin that easily besets them. They cheerfully complied with the proposal and explicitly joined in that covenant, whereupon I proceeded in the most solemn manner to call God to witness their sacred engagement, minded them of the greatness of the guilt they would contract in the violation of it, and that God would be a terrible witness against those who should presume to do so in the great and notable day of the Lord. It was a season of amazing solemnity, and a divine awe appeared upon the face of the whole assembly. Affectionate sighs and tears were frequent in the audience, and I doubt not but many silent cries were sent up to the fountain of grace, for grace sufficient to these solemn engagements. On Tuesday he went to Elizabethtown to attend the meeting of the Presbytery, and spent the time, while absent from his people, in a free and comfortable state of mind. May 3rd. I rode from Elizabethtown home to my people at Cranberry, whither they are now removed, and where I hope God will settle them as a Christian congregation. I was refreshed in lifting up my heart to God while riding, and enjoyed a thankful frame of spirit. 4th. My people having now removed to their lands, I this day visited them and preached to them from Mark chapter 4 verse 5, endeavoring to show the reason there was to fear, lest many hopeful beginnings in religion might prove abortive, like the seed dropped upon stony places. 5th. I visited them again and took care of their worldly concerns, giving them directions related to their business. I daily discover more and more of what importance it is to their religious interests that they become industrious, acquainted with the affairs of husbandry, and able, in a good measure, to raise the necessaries of life within themselves, for their present method of living greatly exposes them to temptations of various kinds. Seventh, I spent most of the day in writing, as usual, and enjoyed some freedom in my work. I was favored with some comfortable meditations this day and in the evening, was in a sweet composed frame of mind, pleased and delighted to leave all with God, respecting myself for time and eternity, and respecting the people of my charge and dear friends. I had no doubt but that God would take care of me and of his own interest among my people, and was enabled to use freedom in prayer as a child with a tender father. Eighth, in the evening I was refreshed and enjoyed a tender melting frame in secret prayer, wherein my soul was drawn out for the interest of Zion, and comforted with the lively hope of the appearing of the kingdom of the great Redeemer. These were sweet moments. I felt almost loath to go to bed, and grieved that sleep was necessary. However, I lay down with a tender, reverential fear of God, sensible that his favor is life, and his smiles better than all that earth can boast of, infinitely better than life itself. Ninth. 
I preached from John chapter 5, verse 40, in the open wilderness, the Indians having as yet no house for public worship in this place, nor scarce any shelter for themselves. Divine truth made considerable impressions upon the audience, and it was a season of solemnity, tenderness, and affection. I baptized one man this day, the conjurer and murderer mentioned before, who appears to be such a remarkable instance of divine grace that I cannot omit some brief account of him. He lived near and sometimes attended me in the forks of Delaware for more than a year together, but was extremely attached to strong drink and seemed to be no ways reformed by the means I used with him. In this time he likewise murdered a young Indian, which threw him into a kind of horror and desperation, so that he kept at a distance from me and refused to hear me preach for several months together, till I had an opportunity of conversing freely with him and giving him encouragement that his sin might be forgiven for Christ's sake. But that which was the worst was his conjuration. He was one of them who are called powwows among the Indians, and notwithstanding his frequent attendance upon my preaching, he still followed his old charms, giving out that he himself was some great one, and to him they gave heed, supposing him to be possessed of a great power. So that when I instructed them respecting miracles wrought by Christ, and mentioned them as evidences of his divine mission, they quickly observed the wonders of that kind which this man had performed by his magic charms, whence they had a high opinion of him, which seemed to be a fatal obstruction to their receiving the gospel. And I often thought it would be a great favor to the Indians if God would take that wretch out of the world. But God only, whose thoughts are not as man's thoughts, has been pleased to take a much more desirable method, a method agreeable to his own merciful nature, and I trust advantageous to his own interest among the Indians, as well as to the poor soul himself. The first genuine concern for his soul that ever appeared in him was excited by seeing my interpreter and his wife baptized at the Forks of Delaware, July 21, 1745, which so prevailed upon him that he followed me down to Crossweeksung in the beginning of August in order to hear me preach, and there continued for several weeks in the season of the most powerful awakenings among the Indians, at which time he was more effectually wakened, and then upon this feeling the word of God in his heart, as he expresses it, his spirit of conjuration left him entirely, that he has had no more power of that nature since then any other man. And he declares that he does not know so much as how he used to charm and conjure, and that he could not do anything of that nature if he was ever so desirous. He continued under convictions all the fall and former part of the winter past, but was not so deeply exercised till January. And then the word of God took such hold upon him that he knew not what to do, nor where to turn. He told me that when he used to hear me preach from time to time in the fall of the year, my preaching pricked his heart, but did not bring him to so great distress, because he still hoped he could do something for his own relief. But now, he said, I drove him up into such a sharp corner that he had nowhere to turn. He continued constantly under the heavy burden of a wounded spirit, till at length he was brought into the utmost agony of soul. After this he was brought to a kind of calmness. His heavy burden was removed, and he appeared perfectly sedate, although he had no sure hope of salvation. I observed him to appear remarkably composed, and thereupon asked him how he did. He replied, It is done, it is done, it is all done now. I asked him what he meant. He answered, I can never do any more to save myself. It is all done forever. I can do no more. I queried with him whether he could not do a little more rather than go to hell. He replied, My heart is dead. I can never help myself. I asked him what he thought would become of him then. He answered, I must go to hell. 
I asked him if he thought it was right that God should send him to hell. He replied, oh, it is right. The devil has been in me ever since I was born. I asked him if he felt this when he was in such great distress the evening before. He answered, no, I did not then think it was right. I thought God would send me to hell and that I was then dropping into it. But my heart quarreled with God and would not say it was right. He should send me there. But now I know it is right, for I have always served the devil, and my heart has no goodness in it now, but it is as bad as ever it was. I thought that I had scarce ever seen any person more effectually brought off from a dependence upon his own endeavors for salvation. In this frame of mind he continued for several days, passing sentence of condemnation upon himself and constantly owning that it would be right he should be damned, and that he expected this would be his portion. And yet it was plain he had a secret hope of mercy, which kept him not only from despair, but from pressing distress, so that instead of being sad and dejected, his very countenance appeared pleasant and agreeable. It was remarkable in this season that he seemed to have a great love to the people of God, and nothing affected him so much as the thoughts of being separated from them. This seemed to be a very dreadful part of the hell he thought himself doomed to. It was likewise remarkable that in this season he was most diligent in the use of all the means for his soul's salvation, although he had the clearest view of the insufficiency of means to afford him help. After he had continued in this frame of mind more than a week, while I was discoursing publicly, he seemed to have a lively view of the excellency of Christ and the way of salvation by him which melted him into tears and filled him with admiration, comfort, and praise to God since which he has appeared to be an humble, devoted, and affectionate Christian, serious and exemplary in his conversation and behavior, frequently complaining of his barrenness, his want of spiritual warmth, life, and activity, and yet frequently favored with quickening influences. In all respects, he bears the marks of one created anew in Christ Jesus to good works. His zeal for the cause of God was pleasing to me when he was with me at the Forks of Delaware in February last. There being an old Indian at the place who threatened to bewitch me and my people who accompanied me, this man presently challenged him to do his worst, telling him that himself had been as great a conjurer as he, and that notwithstanding as soon as he felt that word in his heart which these people loved, his power of conjuring immediately left him. And so it would you, said he, if you did but once feel it in your heart, and you have no power to hurt them, not so much as to touch one of them. May 10th. I rode to Allenstown to assist in the administration of the Lord's Supper. In the afternoon, I preached from Titus chapter 2, verse 14. God was pleased to carry me through with some freedom, and yet to deny me that enlargement I longed for. In the evening, my soul mourned that I had treated so excellent a subject in so defective a manner. And if my discourse had met with the utmost applause from all the world, it would not have given me any satisfaction. Oh, it grieved me to think that I had no more holy warmth, that I had been no more melted in discoursing of Christ's death and the design of it. Afterwards, I enjoyed freedom and fervency in secret and family prayer, and longed much for the presence of God to attend his word and ordinances the next day. Lord's Day, 11th. I assisted in the administration of the Lord's Supper, but enjoyed little enlargement. In the afternoon, I went to the house of God, weak and sick in soul, as well as feeble in body, and longed that the people might be edified with divine truths, and that an honest, fervent testimony might be borne for God, but knew not how it was possible for me to do anything of that kind to any good purpose. Yet God, who was rich in mercy, was pleased to give me assistance, both in prayer and preaching. 
God helped me to wrestle for his presence in prayer and to tell him that he had promised where two or three are met together in his name, there he would be in the midst of them and pleaded that for his truth's sake, he would be with us and blessed be God. It was sweet to my soul thus to plead and rely on God's promises. I discoursed upon Luke chapter nine, verse 30 and behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias who appeared in glory and spake of his decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. I enjoyed special freedom from the beginning to the end of my discourse. Things pertinent to the subject were abundantly presented to my view and such a fullness of matter that I scarce knew how to dismiss the various heads I had occasion to touch upon. And blessed be the Lord, I was favored with some fervency and power as well as freedom so that the word of God seemed to awaken the attention of a stupid audience to a considerable degree. I was inwardly refreshed with the consolations of God and could with my whole heart say, though there be no fruit in the vine, etc., yet will I rejoice in the Lord. Sixteenth, near night I enjoyed some agreeable conversation with a dear minister, which I trust was blessed to my soul, and my heart was warmed and my soul engaged to live to God, so that I longed to exert myself with more vigor than ever I had done in his cause, and those words were quickening to me. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bring forth much fruit. O oh, my soul longed and wished and prayed to be enabled to live to God with constancy and ardor. In the evening God was pleased to shine upon me in secret prayer and draw out my soul after him. And I had freedom in supplication for myself, but much more in intercession for others. So that I was sweetly constrained to say, Lord, use me as thou wilt, do as thou wilt with me, but O oh, promote thine own cause. Zion is thine. O visit thine heritage. O let thy kingdom come. O let thy blessed interest be advanced in the world. When I attempted to look to God, respecting my settling in my congregation, which seems to be necessary and yet very difficult and contrary to my fixed intention for years past, as well as my disposition, which has been and still is, to go forth and spend my life in preaching the gospel from place to place and gathering souls afar off to Jesus the great Redeemer, when I attempted to look to God with regard to these things, I could only say, The will of the Lord be done. It is no matter to me. The same frame of mind I felt with respect to another important affair I have lately had some serious thoughts of. I could say with the utmost calmness and composure, Lord, if it be most for thy glory, let me proceed in it. But if thou seest that it will in any wise hinder my usefulness in thy cause, O oh, prevent my proceeding. For all I want is such circumstances as may best capacitate me to do service for God in the world. Oh, how sweet was this evening to my soul. I knew not how to go to bed, and when I got to bed, longed for some way to improve time for God to some excellent purpose. Seventeenth, I walked out in the morning and felt much of the same frame I enjoyed the evening before. Had my heart enlarged in praying for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ and found the utmost freedom in leaving all my concerns with God. I find discouragement to be an exceeding hindrance to my spiritual fervency and affection, but when God enables me to find that I have done something for him, this refreshes and animates me so that I could break through all hardships, undergo any labors, and nothing seems too much either to do or suffer. But oh, what a death it is to strive and strive to be always in a hurry and yet do nothing. Alas, alas, that time flies away, and I do so little for God. Lord's Day, 18th. I felt my own utter insufficiency for my work. God made me to see that I was a child, yea, that I was a fool. I discoursed both parts of the day from Revelation chapter 3, verse 29, 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. God gave me freedom and power in the latter part of my forenoon discourse, although in the former part of it I felt peevish and provoked with the unmannerly behavior of the white people who crowded in between my people and me. But blessed be God, I got those shackles off before the middle of my discourse and was favored with a sweet frame of spirit in the latter part of the exercise, was full of love, warmth, and tenderness in addressing my dear people. In the intermission season, I could not but discourse to my people on the kindness and patience of Christ in standing and knocking at the door. In the evening, I was grieved that I had done so little for God. Oh, that I could be a flame of fire in the service of my God. 22nd. In the evening, I was in a frame somewhat remarkable. I had apprehended for several days that it was a design of providence I should dwell among my people, and had in my own mind thought to make provision for it, and yet was never quite pleased with the thoughts of being confined to one place. Nevertheless, I seemed to have some freedom, because the congregation was one that God had enabled me to gather from among pagans. For I never could feel any freedom to enter into other men's labors and settle where the gospel was preached before. God has never given me any liberty in that respect, either since or for some years before I began to preach. But God, having succeeded my labors and made me instrumental of gathering a church for him among these Indians, I was ready to think it might be his design to give me a quiet settlement. And this, considering the late, frequent failure of my spirits and the need I stood in of some agreeable society, and my great desire of enjoying conveniencies for profitable studies, was not altogether disagreeable to me. And although I still wanted to go about far and wide in order to spread the blessed gospel among benighted souls, yet I never had been so willing to settle for more than five years past as I was in the foregoing part of this week. But now these thoughts seemed to be wholly dashed to pieces, not by necessity but by choice, for it appeared to me that God's dealings towards me had fitted me for a life of solitariness and hardship. It appeared to me I had nothing to lose, nothing to do with earth, and consequently nothing to lose by a total renunciation of it. And it appeared just right that I should be destitute of house and home and many comforts, which I rejoiced to see others of God's people enjoy. At the same time, I saw so much of the excellency of Christ's kingdom and the infinite desirableness of its advancement in the world that it swallowed up all my other thoughts and made me willing to be a pilgrim or hermit in the wilderness to my dying moment if I might thereby promote the blessed interest of the great Redeemer. And if ever my soul presented itself to God for his service, without any reserve of any kind, it did so now. The language of my thoughts, although I spake no words, now was, Here I am, Lord, send me. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me to the rough, the savage pagans of the wilderness. Send me from all that is called comfort on earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be but in thy service, and to promote thy kingdom. And at the same time I had as quick and lively a sense of the value of worldly comforts as ever I had, but saw them infinitely overmatched by the worth of Christ's kingdom and the propagation of this blessed gospel. The quiet settlement, the certain place of abode, the tender friendship, which I thought I might be likely to enjoy, appeared as valuable to me, considered absolutely and in themselves, as ever before. But considered comparatively, they appeared nothing. Compared with an enlargement of Christ's kingdom, they vanished like the stars before the rising sun. And the comfortable accommodations of life appeared valuable and dear to me, yet I did surrender myself, soul and body, to the service of God and promotion of Christ's kingdom, though it should be in the loss of them all. I was constrained and yet chose to say, 
Farewell, friends, and earthly comforts, the dearest of them all, if the Lord calls for it. Adieu, adieu. I will spend my life to my latest moments in caves and dens of the earth, if the kingdom of Christ may thereby be advanced. I found extraordinary freedom at this time in pouring out my soul to God for his cause, and especially that his kingdom might be extended among the Indians, and I had a strong hope that God would do it. I continued wrestling with God in prayer for my dear little flock here and more especially for the Indians elsewhere, as well as for dear friends in one place and another, till it was bedtime and I feared I should hinder the family. But oh, with what reluctancy did I find myself obliged to consume time in sleep. I longed to be as a flame of fire, continually glowing in the divine service, preaching and building up Christ's kingdom to my latest, to my dying moment. 23rd. In the afternoon, I was in the same frame of mind as in the evening before. The glory of Christ's kingdom so much outshone the pleasure of earthly accommodations and enjoyments that they appeared comparatively nothing, though in themselves good and desirable. My soul was melted in secret meditation and prayer, and I found myself divorced from any part in this world, so that in those affairs that seemed of the greatest importance in the present life, and those wherein the tender powers of the mind are most sensibly touched, I could only say, The will of the Lord be done. Just the same that I felt the evening before. I felt now the same freedom in prayer for the people of my charge, for the propagation of the gospel among the Indians, and for the enlargement of Zion in general, and my dear friends in particular, and longed to burn out in one continual flame for God. In the evening, I was visited by my brother John Brainerd, the first visit I have received from any near relative since I have been a missionary. Blessed be God, if ever I filled up a day with studies and devotion, I was enabled to fill up this day. Lord's Day, May 25th. I discoursed both parts of the day from John chapter 12, verses 44 through 48. There was some degree of divine power attending the word of God. Sundry wept and appeared considerably affected, and one who had long been under spiritual trouble obtained clearness and comfort and appeared to rejoice in God, her Savior. I have reason to hope that God has lately brought home to himself sundry souls who have long been under spiritual trouble, though there have been few instances of persons lately awakened out of a state of insecurity. And those comforted of late seem to be brought in, in a more silent way, neither their concern nor consolation being so powerful and remarkable as appeared among those wrought upon in the beginning. June 6th. I discoursed to my people from part of Isaiah chapter 53. The divine presence appeared to be amongst us. Diverse persons were much melted and refreshed, and one man in particular was now brought to see and feel, in a very lively manner, the impossibility of his doing anything to help himself or to bring him into the favor of God by his tears, prayers, and other religious performances. Seventh, I rode to Freehold to assist Mr. Tennant in the administration of the Lord's Supper. In the afternoon, I preached from Psalm chapter 63, verse 28. God gave me some freedom and warmth in my discourse, and I trust his presence was in the assembly. I was comfortably composed and enjoyed a thankful frame of spirit, and my soul was grieved that I could not render anything to God for his benefits bestowed. Oh, that I could be swallowed up in his praise. Lord's Day, June 8th. I spent much time in the morning in secret duties, but between hope and fear respecting the enjoyment of God in the business of the day. I was agreeably entertained in the forenoon by a discourse from Mr. Tennant and felt melted and refreshed. In the season of communion, I enjoyed some comfort and especially in serving one of the tables. 
Blessed be the Lord, it was a time of refreshing to me, and I trust to many others. A number of my dear people sat down by themselves at the last table, at which time God seemed to be in the midst of them, and the thoughts of what God had done among them were refreshing and melting to me. In the afternoon, God enabled me to preach with uncommon freedom from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Through a great goodness of God, I was favored with a constant flow of matter and proper expressions. In the evening, I could not but rejoice in God and bless Him for the manifestations of grace in the day past. Oh, it was a sweet and solemn day, a season of comfort to the godly and of awakening to other souls. Ninth, I preached the concluding sermon from Genesis chapter 5 verse 24, and Enoch walked with God. God gave me enlargement and fervency in my disclosure so that I was enabled to speak with plainness and power. Praised be the Lord. It was a sweet meeting, a desirable assembly. I found my strength renewed and lengthened out even to a wonder so that I felt much stronger at the conclusion than in the beginning. I have great reason to bless God for this solemnity wherein I have found assistance in addressing others and sweetness in my own soul. Today, a considerable number of my people met together early in a retired place in the woods and prayed, sang, and conversed of divine things, and were seen by some of the white people to be affected and engaged, and diverse of them in tears. Afterwards, they attended the concluding exercises of the sacramental solemnity, and then returned home, rejoicing for all the goodness of God they had seen and felt, so that this appeared to be a profitable as well as a comfortable season to many of my congregation. Thirteenth, I came away from the meeting of the Indians this day, rejoicing and blessing God for His grace manifested at this season. The same day I baptized five persons, three adults and two children. One of these was the very aged woman of whom I gave an account in my journal of December 26th. She now gave me a very punctual, rational, and satisfactory account of the remarkable change she experienced some months after the beginning of her concern. And although she was become so childish through old age that I could do nothing in a way of questioning with her, yet when I let her alone to go on with her own story, she could give a very distinct relation of the many and various exercises of soul she had experienced, so deep were the impressions left upon her mind by that influence she had been under. And I have great reason to hope she is born anew in her old age, she being, I presume, upwards of fourscore. Fourteenth. I wrote to Kingston to assist the Reverend Mr. Wales in the administration of the Lord's Supper. In the afternoon I preached, but almost fainted in the pulpit. Yet God strengthened me when I was just gone and enabled me to speak his word with freedom, fervency, and application to the conscience. And praised be the Lord, out of weakness I was made strong. I enjoyed sweetness in and after public worship, but was extremely tired. Oh, how many are the mercies of the Lord. To them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Lord's Day, June 15th. I was in a dejected, spiritless frame that I could not hold up my head nor look anybody in the face. Yet I administered the Lord's Supper at Mr. Wales's desire and found myself in a good measure relieved for my pressing load when I came to ask a blessing on the elements. Here God gave me enlargement and a tender, affectionate sense of spiritual things so that it was a season of comfort to me and I trust more so to others. In the afternoon, I preached to a vast multitude from Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. God helped me to offer a testimony for himself and to leave sinners inexcusable in neglecting his grace. I was enabled to speak with such freedom, fluency, and clearness as commanded the attention of the great. 
I was extremely tired in the evening, but enjoyed composure and sweetness. 16th, I preached again and God helped me amazingly so that this was a refreshing season to my soul and others. Forever blessed be God for help afforded at this time when my body was so weak and there was so large an assembly to hear. 19th, I visited my people with two of the reverend correspondents. I spent some time in conversation with them upon spiritual things and took care of their worldly concerns. This day makes us a complete year from the first time of my preaching to these Indians in New Jersey. What amazing things has God wrought in this time for these poor people. What a surprising change appears in their tempers and behavior. How are savage pagans transformed into affectionate and humble Christians, and their drunken and pagan howlings turned into fervent prayers and praises to God? They who were sometimes darkness are now become light in the Lord. May they walk as children of the light and of the day. And now to him that is of power to establish them according to the gospel and the preaching of Christ, to God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Before I conclude, I would make a few general remarks upon what to me appears worthy of notice. And first, I cannot but take notice that I have, ever since my first coming among these Indians, been favored with that assistance, which to me is uncommon, in preaching Christ crucified and making him the center and mark to which all my discourses were directed. It was the principal scope of all my discourses for several months, after having taught the people something of the being and perfections of God, his creation of man in a state of rectitude and happiness, and the obligations mankind were thence under to love and honor him, to lead them into an acquaintance with their deplorable state by nature, their inability to deliver themselves from it, the utter insufficiency of any external reformation or of any religious performances to bring them into favor of God and thence to show them their absolute need of Christ to save them from the misery of their fallen state, to open his all-sufficiency and willingness to save the chief of sinners. The freeness and riches of his grace proposed, without money and without price, and thereupon to press them without delay to betake themselves to him, under a sense of their misery and undone estate, for relief and everlasting salvation." and to show them the abundant encouragement that the gospel proposes to perishing, helpless sinners so to do. And I have often remarked that whatever subject I have been upon, after having spent time sufficient to explain the truths contained therein, I have been naturally and easily led to Christ as the substance of every one. If I treated on the being and glorious perfections of God, I was thence naturally led to discourse of Christ as the only way to the Father. If I attempted to open the misery of our fallen state, it was natural from thence to show the necessity of Christ to undertake for us, to atone for our sins, and to redeem us from the power of them. If I taught the commands of God and showed our violation of them, this brought me in the most easy way to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as one who had magnified the law we had broken, and who was become the end of it for righteousness to everyone who believes." And never did I find so much freedom and assistance in making all the various lines of my discourses meet together and center in Christ, as I have frequently done among these Indians. I have frequently been enabled to represent the divine glory, the infinite preciousness and transcendent loveliness of the great Redeemer, the suitableness of his person and purchase to supply the wants and answer the utmost desires of immortal souls to open the infinite riches of his grace and the wonderful encouragement proposed in the gospel to unworthy, helpless sinners, to call, invite, and beseech them to come and give up themselves to him 
and to be reconciled to God through him, to expostulate with them respecting their neglect of one so infinitely lovely and freely offered. And this in such a manner, with such a freedom, pertinency, pathos, and application to the conscience as I never could have made myself master of by the most assiduous application. And I have often at such seasons been surprisingly helped in adapting my discourses to the capacities of my people and bringing them down into such easy, vulgar, and familiar methods of expressions as has rendered them intelligible even to the pagans. Secondly, it is worthy of remark that numbers of these people were brought to a strict compliance with the rules of morality and sobriety and to a conscientious performance of the external duties of Christianity without their having them frequently inculcated upon them and the contrary vices particularly exposed. God was pleased to give the grand gospel truth such a powerful influence upon their minds that their lives were quickly reformed without my spending time in repeated harangues upon external duties. There was indeed no room for any discourses, but those that respected the essentials of religion and the experimental knowledge of divine things, while there were so many inquiring daily, not how they should regulate their external conduct, but how they should escape from the wrath to come, obtain an effectual change of heart, get an interest in Christ, and come to the enjoyment of the eternal blessedness. So that my great work still was to lead them into a further view of their total depravity, to show that there was no manner of goodness in them, no good dispositions nor desires, no love to God nor delights in his commands, but on the contrary, hatred, enmity, and all manner of wickedness and at the same time to open to them the glorious remedy provided in Christ for helpless, perishing sinners, and offered freely to those who have no goodness of their own, no works of righteousness to recommend them to God. When these truths were felt at heart, there was no vice unreformed, no external duty neglected. Drunkenness, the darling vice, was broken off, and scarce an instant of it known for months together. The practice of husbands and wives in putting away each other and taking others in their stead was quickly reformed. The same might be said of all other vicious practices. The Reformation was general and all springing from the internal influence of divine truths upon their hearts, not because they had heard these vices particularly exposed and repeatedly spoken against. So that happy experience, as well as the word of God and the example of Christ and his apostles have taught me, that the preaching which is suited to awaken in mankind a lively apprehension of their depravity and misery, to excite them earnestly to seek after a change of heart, and to fly for refuge to Christ as the only hope set before them, is likely to be most successful toward the reformation of their external conduct. I have found that close addresses and solemn applications of divine truths to the conscience strike death to the root of all vice, while smooth and plausible harangues upon moral virtues and external duties at best, do no more than lop off the branches of corruption. I do not intend by what I have observed to represent the preaching of morality and pressing persons to the external performances of duty to be unnecessary and useless at any time, and especially at times when there is less of divine power attending the means of grace. It is doubtless among the things that ought to be done while others are not to be left undone. But what I principally design is to discover a plain matter of fact, viz. that the external compliance with the rules of Christianity appearing among my people are not the effect of any merely rational view of the beauty of morality, but of the internal influence that divine truths have had upon their hearts. Thirdly, 
It is remarkable that God has so continued and renewed the showers of his grace, so quickly set up his kingdom among these people, and so smiled upon them in relation to their acquirement of knowledge, both divine and human. It is now near a year since the beginning of this gracious outpouring of the divine spirit among them, and although it has often seemed to decline for some short time, yet the shower was renewed and the work of grace revived again, so that a divine influence seems still to attend the means of grace in a greater or less degree, whereby religious persons are refreshed, strengthened, and established, convictions revived and promoted in many instances, and some newly awakened from time to time. Although it must be acknowledged that for some time past there has appeared a more manifest decline of this work, yet blessed be God there is still an appearance of divine power, a desirable degree of tenderness and devotion in our assemblies. And as God has continued the showers of his grace among this people, so he has with uncommon quickness set up his visible kingdom in the midst of them. I have now baptized, since the conclusion of my last journal, thirty persons, fifteen adults and fifteen children which added to the number there mentioned makes 77 persons, whereof 38 are adults and 39 children, and all within the space of 11 months past, and have baptized no adults but such as appeared to have a work of grace in their hearts. I mean such as have had the experience not only of the awakening, but of the renewing and comforting influences of the divine spirit. Much of the goodness of God has appeared in relation to their acquirement of knowledge both in religion and in common life. There has been a wonderful thirst after Christian knowledge among them and an eager desire of being instructed. This has prompted them to ask many pertinent as well as important questions. Many of the doctrines I have delivered, they have queried with me about in order to gain further light into them and have from time to time manifested a good understanding of them by their answers to the questions proposed. They have likewise taken pains and appeared remarkably apt in learning to sing psalms and are now able to sing with a good degree of decency in the worship of God. They have also acquired a considerable degree of useful knowledge in the affairs of common life, so that they now appear like rational creatures, fit for human society, free from that savage roughness and brutish stupidity which rendered them very disagreeable in their pagan state. And as they are desirous of instruction and surprisingly apt in the reception of it, so divine providence has smiled upon them in regard of proper means in order to it. The attempts made for a school among them have succeeded, and a kind providence has sent them a schoolmaster, of whom I may justly say I know of no man like-minded who will naturally care for their state. He has generally thirty or thirty-five children in his school, and when he kept an evening school, as he did while the length of the evenings would admit of it, he had 15 or 20 people, married and single. The children learn with surprising readiness, so that their master tells me he never had any English school that learned in general near so fast. There were not above two in 30, although some were very small, but what learned to know all the letters of the alphabet distinctly within three days after his entrance upon his business, and diverse in that space learned to spell considerably and some of them since the beginning of February last, at which time the school was set up, have learned so much that they are able to read in a Psalter or Testament without spelling. They are instructed in the duty of secret prayer, and most of them constantly attend it night and morning, and are very careful to inform their master if they apprehend any of their little schoolmates neglect that religious exercise. Fourthly, it is worthy to be noted that amidst so great a work of conviction, 
so much concern and religious affection, there has been no prevalency, nor indeed any considerable appearance of false religion, if I may so term it, or heats of imagination, intemperate zeal, and spiritual pride, which corrupt mixtures too often attend the revival of religion, and that there have been so very few instances of scandalous behavior among those who have appeared serious. The religious concern that persons have been under has generally been rational and just, arising from a sense of their sins and the divine displeasure on the account of them, as well as their utter inability to deliver themselves from the misery they felt and feared. And it is remarkable, although the concern of many persons has been very great and pressing, yet I have never seen anything like despair attending it in any one instance, whence it is apparent there is not that danger of persons being driven into despair under spiritual trouble, unless in cases of melancholy, that the world in general imagine. The comfort persons have obtained after their distresses has likewise in general appeared solid, well-grounded, and scriptural, arising from a spiritual and supernatural illumination of mind, a view of divine things as they are, a complacency of soul in the divine perfections, and a peculiar satisfaction in the way of salvation by free grace in the great Redeemer. Their joys have seemed to rise from a variety of views and considerations of divine things, although for substance the same. Some have at first appeared to rejoice, especially in the wisdom of God discovered in the way of salvation by Christ, it then appearing to them a new and living way, a way they had never thought nor had any just conception of until opened to them by the special influence of the divine spirit. And some of them, upon a lively spiritual view of this way of salvation, have wondered at their past folly in seeking salvation other ways, and have admired that they never saw this way of salvation before, which now appeared so plain and easy. Others have had a more general view of the beauty and excellency of Christ, and have had their souls delighted with an apprehension of his glory, as unspeakably exceeding all they had ever conceived before, yet without singling out, as it were, any one of the divine perfections in particular, so that although their comforts seemed to arise from a variety of views of divine glories, still they were spiritual and supernatural views of them. On a review of Mr. Brainerd's success this year, who can forbear exclaiming what hath God wrought? His public journal closes at June the 19th, but we learn from his diary that he continued laboring and journeying with various success till the 11th of August, when he proposes once more to visit Susquehanna, and arrived in the course of the week accompanied by six of his Christian Indians at Charlestown, a place about 30 miles westward of Philadelphia, and in the following extracts he relates on account of his journey from thence to the place of his destination, his reception among the Indians, and all that occurred of importance in his returning. It was here that consumption, most fatal of Pandora's train, marked him for her own. The symptoms of this deplorable malady visibly appeared in his journey home, which he performed with the greatest difficulty and at the risk of his life. August 16th. It being a day kept by the people of the place where I now was, as preparatory to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, I tarried, heard Mr. Treat preach, and then preached myself. God gave me some freedom and helped me to discourse with warmth and application to the conscience. Afterwards, I was refreshed in spirit, though much tired, and spent the evening agreeably in prayer and Christian conversation. 18th. I rode on my way towards Paxton upon Susquehanna River, but felt my spirits sink towards night. 19th. 
I rode forward still, and at night lodged by the side of Susquehanna. Twentieth. Having lain in a cold sweat all night, I coughed much bloody matter this morning, but what gave me encouragement was that I had a secret hope that I might speedily get a dismission from earth and all its sorrows. I rode this day to one chamber's, upon susquehanna and there lodged but was much afflicted in the evening with an ungodly crew drinking and swearing oh what a hell it would be to be numbered with the ungodly twenty-first i rode up the river about fifteen miles and there lodged in a family that appeared quite destitute of god i labored to discourse with the man about the life of religion but found him very artful in evading it oh what a death is to come to hear the things of god Twenty-second, I continued my course up the river, my people now being with me, who before were parted from me, traveled above all the English settlements, at night lodged in the open woods, and slept with more comfort than while among an ungodly company of white people. Lord's Day, August 24th. Towards noon I visited some of the Delawares and discoursed with them about Christianity. In the afternoon I discoursed to the king and others on divine things who seemed disposed to hear. I spent most of the day in these exercises. In the evening, I enjoyed some comfort and satisfaction, especially in secret prayer. This duty was made so agreeable that I loved to walk abroad and repeatedly engage in it. 25th. I sent out my people to talk with the Indians and contract a familiarity with them. Some good seemed to be done by their visit this day, and divers appeared willing to hearken to Christianity. 26th. About noon, I discoursed to a considerable number of Indians. I was enabled to speak with much plainness, warmth, and power. The discourse had impressions upon some and made them appear very serious. 27th. There having been a thick smoke in the house where I lodged, I was this morning distressed with pains in my head and neck. In the morning, the smoke was still the same, and a cold easterly storm gathering. I could neither live indoors nor without any long time together. I was pierced with the rawness of the air abroad, in the house distressed with the smoke. I this day lived in great distress and had not health enough to do anything to purpose. 28th. I was under great concern of mind. I was visited by some who desired to hear me preach and discoursed to them in the afternoon with some fervency and labored to persuade them to turn to God. I scarce ever saw more clearly that it is God's work to convert souls. I knew I could not touch them. I saw I could only speak to dry bones, but could give them no sense of what I said. My eyes were up to God for help. I could only say the work was his. 29th. I traveled to the Delawares, found few at home, felt poorly, but was able to spend some time alone in reading God's word and prayer. Lord's Day, August 31st. I spake the word of God to some few of the Susquehanna Indians. In the afternoon, I felt very weak and feeble. Oh, how heavy is my work when faith cannot take hold of an almighty arm for the performance of it. September 1st, I set out on a journey towards a place called the Great Island, about 50 miles distant from Shamoking, in the northwestern branch of Susquehanna. At night I lodged in the woods. I was exceeding feeble this day and sweat much the night following. Second, I rode forward, but no faster than my people went on foot. I was so feeble and faint that I feared it would kill me to lie out in the open air, and some of our company being parted from us so that we had now no axe with us, I had no way but to climb into a young pine tree, and with my knife to lop off the branches and so made a shelter from the dew. 
I sweat much in the night so that my linen was almost wringing wet all night. I scarce ever was more weak and weary than this evening. Third, I rode to Delaware town and found divers drinking and drunken. I discoursed with some of the Indians about Christianity, observed my interpreter much engaged in his work. Some few persons seemed to hear with great earnestness. About noon, I rode to a small town of Shawanos, about eight miles distant, spent an hour or two there, and returned to the Delaware town. Oh, what a dead, barren, unprofitable wretch did I now see myself to be. My spirits were so low and my bodily strength so wasted that I could do nothing at all. At length, being much overdone, I lay down on a buffalo skin, but sweat much the whole night. Fourth, I discoursed with the Indians about Christianity. My interpreter afterwards carrying on the discourse to a considerable length, some few appeared well disposed and somewhat affected. I left this place and returned towards Shamoking, and at night lodged in the place where I lodged the Monday night before. But my people being belated did not come to me till past ten at night, so that I had no fire to dress my victuals or to keep me warm, and I was scarce ever more weak and worn out in my life. Fifth, I was so weak that I could scarcely ride. It seemed sometimes as if I must fall off from my horse. However, I got to Shamoking towards night and felt thankfulness that God had so far supported me. Sixth, I spent the day in a very weak state, coughing and spitting blood, and having little appetite to any food I had with me. I was able to do very little except discourse a while of divine things to my own people and to some few I met with. Monday, September 8th. I spent the forenoon among the Indians, in the afternoon left Shamoking and returned down the river a few miles. I had proposed to have tarried a considerable time longer among the Indians upon Susquehanna, but was hindered by the weekly circumstances of my own people, and especially my own extraordinary weakness, having been exercised with great nocturnal sweats and a coughing up of blood in almost the whole of the journey. I was a great part of the time so feeble and faint that it seemed as though I never should be able to reach home and at the same time destitute of the comforts, yea, the necessaries of life, at least what was necessary for one in so weak a state. In this journey I sometimes was enabled to speak the word of God with power, and divine truths made some impressions on diverse that heard me, so that several, both men and women, old and young, seemed to cleave to us and be well disposed towards Christianity. But others mocked and shouted, which damped those who before seemed friendly. Yet God at times was evidently present, assisting me, my interpreter, and other near friends who were with me. God gave sometimes a good degree of freedom in prayer for the ingathering of souls there, and I could not but entertain a strong hope that the journey should not be wholly fruitless. Ninth, I rode down the river near thirty miles, was extremely weak, much fatigued, and met with a thunderstorm. I discoursed with some warmth and closeness to some poor ignorant souls on the life and power of religion. They seemed much astonished when they saw my Indians ask a blessing and to give thanks at dinner, concluding that a very high evidence of grace in them, but were more astonished when I insisted that neither that nor yet secret prayer was any sure evidence of grace. Oh, the ignorance of the world! How are some empty, outward forms mistaken for true religion? Tenth, I rode near twenty miles homeward and was much solicited to preach, but was utterly unable. I was extremely overdone with the heat and showers and coughed up considerable quantities of blood. Eleventh, I rode homeward but was very weak and sometimes scarce able to ride. I had a very importunate invitation to preach at a meeting house I came by but could not by reason of weakness. 
I was resigned under my weakness, but was much exercised for my companions in travel, whom I had left with much regret, some lame and some sick. Twelfth. I rode about fifty miles and came just at night to a Christian friend's house about twenty-five miles westward from Philadelphia. I was kindly entertained and found myself much refreshed in the midst of my weakness and fatigues. Lord's Day, September 14th. I preached both parts of the day, but short, from Luke chapter 14, verse 23. God gave me the freedom and warmth in my discourses and helped me to labor in singleness of heart. I was much tired in the evening, but was comforted with the most tender treatment I ever met with in my life. My mind through the whole of the day was exceeding calm, and I could ask for nothing but that the will of God might be done. 17th. I rode to Philadelphia, but was very weak, and my cough and spitting of blood continued. 20th. I arrived among my own people, found them praying together, went in and gave them some account of God's dealings with me and my companions in the journey. I then prayed with them, and the divine presence was among us. Diverse were melted into cheers. Being very weak, I was obliged soon to repair to my lodgings. Thus God has carried me through the fatigues and perils of another journey to Susquehanna, and returned me again in safety, though under a great degree of bodily indisposition. Many hardships and distresses I endured in this journey, but the Lord supported me under them all. It is peculiarly affecting to behold a spirit so nobly ardent and zealous in the best of causes, sinking in the midst of youth and in the full vigor of its faculties under the pressure of bodily disease. To observe a life so admirably begun, which promised so fair, so soon closed, a light so powerful and steady, which the Redeemer seemed to hold as a star in his right hand, so suddenly quenched in the darkness of the grave. But who shall scrutinize the high behests of heaven? Who shall say unto God, What dost thou? When he ordains, the youthful traveler ends his journey, and his sun goes down while it is yet day. The heart warmed with benevolence must be chilled with the icy hand of death. The tongue that utters wisdom and kindness must rest in silence when he, the great arbiter of life, proclaims, Return, ye children of men. But let us with pious awe contemplate the last labors and the last hours of Brainerd. And may the sight of his early tomb furnish the ministers of Jesus with a new motive to work while it is called day, and to work till the close of the day. If Brainerd had retired from the field of exertion before last year, what would he not have lost? That his work was soon done was his happiness. O God, if thou givest me long life, may every hour of it be thine. But if few are to be the days of my mortal pilgrimage, let every minute be improved as an hour, and suffer me not to go down to the grave without the meed of usefulness, the cheering yet humbling reflection that as an instrument in thy hand, I have turned many to righteousness. End of chapter 7